Connie and I took our granddaughters on a uh, three-week road trip to the, the Little House on the Prairie uh, sites in the Midwest, and we had a great time, but it was really hot, so um, glad to be back. You know, all three of our kids ran track in high school, and they all did pretty well um, because, like their mom, they were uh, natural runners. Not like me. I'm a real ugly runner. I look kind of like an octopus running down the track. Um, but. But my kids all liked track, and um, they, they enjoyed running. But I got to tell you, it scarred them for life. You know, you've, you've heard of people that get knee injuries in football and shoulder injuries, but especially my daughter Carrie. If you want to get my daughter Carrie wound up tighter than a $2 watch, all you have to say is, first call, ladies, 300 meters. And she just gets really agitated. She gets... She gets angry, she gets uh, upset. It literally makes her sick if you say that because it brings back those memories of the butterflies you'd get before the race. Now I mention that because in much the same way, the, some of the themes that we're gonna cover in Romans make you anxious, they make you sick, they give you the butterflies. And one of those themes that we're gonna begin with today is about God's calling, God's election, God's choice. And I'm sorry if that upsets you, but a matter of fact is that it's, this is not my theological presupposition. This is not about Augustine or Paul or Reformed theology or Calvinism. What we're going to be talking about is truly from God's Word. And the concepts of God's choice, God's election, God's calling are all through the Scriptures. We're going to be encountering this concept over and over again through the gospel, um, through the book of Romans, and all through scripture, because the bottom line for us is that salvation is of the Lord from first to last, and this clarion call we'll find over and over in God's word. Now, as Hanson mentioned last week, um, this is not a popular position. This is not even acceptable to many people. Um, they, have, they struggle with this idea because it suggests that there's nothing praiseworthy, admirable, there's nothing that you can be congratulated for in the fact that you chose God, that you made the right decision to accept salvation. Um, there's nothing that we can praise you for that in your wisdom you were smarter than everybody else and that you chose to be saved. Many people have left this church over the teaching of God's election, and many of you will through the course of our study of Romans. Um, but as I tell you every week or almost every week, I invite you to look at your scripture. I invite you, I challenge you not to believe something because I tell you and certainly not because anybody else, no matter how famous they are, tells you. I invite you to find out from the scripture whether what we say here today is really of God's word. Don't accept it from me. Accept it on what does the word of God say. And if you don't believe in election, calling God's sovereign choice, then you have three options. You can take out a little knife or razor blade, and you can cut out those words because they're not concepts that are introduced into the Scripture. These are words that actually occur in the Scripture. In fact, the word chosen occurs 31 times over 36 books in the Bible. The word election occurs 42 times in the Scripture. The word God's calling or God's call occurs 502 times, and God's calling occurs 43 times. So if you choose the option to cut those words out, you're going to have a lot of holes in your Bible. The other option, of course, is that you um, 
find a church that preaches what you like to hear, what you prefer it, the word to say. And of course, the third option is you can look at the word of God and you can change your mind. You can, you can submit your will, what you believe, to what God's word says. And I, I hope you'll choose that option. Let's look carefully as we examine the book of Romans. Is this really what God's word says? Now, with that introduction, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we know that a humble spirit is indispensable in learning, and we pray that as we consider these great themes of Romans, these great history-changing, life-changing words that are sometimes very familiar, that you'll give us a spirit of uh, humility and a willingness to be constantly learning from your word, even if it's something that we're familiar with. And we pray that um, the power that was exhibited in the life of Paul and Augustine and Luther and Wesley and so many others, uh, when they come to these uh, understandings of these profound uh, fundamental doctrines, that the faith that grew in them will be seen in us too. And we pray that you give us a continued spirit of humility and may that continue throughout our book study. And we ask your blessing on our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans 1.1. Since we've been in Acts for the last couple of years, it's the next page. So you won't have too hard a time finding it. Now, no reasonable person would ever assume that the book of Romans is dispensable because there's some really powerful, valuable doctrine that's taught in the book of Romans. It's clearly one of the most influential books that's ever been written. Um, the Apostle Paul is writing this book. He is the force behind some of these teachings, but there's a lot of super things that have happened as a consequence of the study of this word. As I said, Augustine, one of the brilliant minds of the church in the fourth century, um, he came to the idea of being convicted of his sin and brought to salvation from reading the 13th chapter of Romans. Martin Luther began the Protestant Reformation. The whole idea of doctrine of salvation by faith alone and grace alone is he read um, the, the passage that we're going to be studying next week from Romans chapter 1, verse 17. Um, John Wesley was reading Luther's preface to his study in Romans, and John Wesley got converted. He became responsible for the great evangelical revival of the 18th century. Um, John Bunyan was, cons was considering the doctrines of the book of Romans while he was in the Bedford jail, and it was at that time that he wrote the Pilgrim's Progress, many of you are familiar with. So there's no doubt that the book of Romans has been very influential, and a lot of revivals have started as a consequence of looking at the book of Romans. And it's a study that produces great excitement, and it's a study that produces great trepidation. Excitement because the possibilities of these themes are truly life-changing, the idea that, that these themes will bring to our life, but trepidation also because these are massive themes. These are huge theological works. And great minds have wrestled through these themes. And when I look at that, I think, wow, I've got great sermon fodder. I've got all this great material from these brilliant minds that have, that have studied through Romans. But it also gives me trepidation because I realize the best that I'm going to do is give you a very imperfect presentation of what these great minds have done. I'm just an imitation of what these guys have done before me. Now, as we studied uh, the book of Acts, you're probably aware that Paul wrote the book of Romans while he was in Corinth um, sometime in the winter of A.D. 57. 
Remember, he was wintering over. He was, he was waiting for the Mediterranean seas to become navigable again. And so he's in Corinth. He's bringing an offering to the Jerusalem church <coughs> that the Gentile church had, had collected for them. And it was his intention that after he brought this offering to Jerusalem that he would come to Rome. He's never been there. He didn't plant a church in Rome. He's, he doesn't know um, the people there. Uh, but his intention is to go to Rome on his way to Spain because he wants to preach the gospel in places where it has not yet reached. And so he writes to um, the Romans in Romans 15, 23, since I've longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. So Paul has intended to go to Rome and he ends up in Rome, but under very different circumstances, as we learned at the end of the book of Acts. So he, he does, in fact, make it to Rome, and he's very pleased with the reception he, he gets there when he gets to Rome. Now, Rome speaks, the book of Romans speaks to us very powerfully today as it spoke to the first recipients of this word. It speaks to us morally, and it talks about the themes like adultery and fornication and homosexuality and hating and murder and lying and civil disobedience. Um, it speaks to us intellectually because it tells us that the natural man without Christ is confused about who he is, and because of his reprobate mind, he can't grasp these great themes. It speaks to us socially because it tells us how we are to relate to one another. It speaks to us psychologically, and then it tells us where true freedom comes and how man can be relieved from the burden of guilt that he bears. It speaks to us um, nationally because it tells us about our responsibility to obey the governing authorities over us. It speaks to us internationally because it tells us about the ultimate destiny of all the kingdoms of the earth, and especially the kingdom of, of Israel. Um, it speaks to us spiritually in that it answers man's despair, his, his, his uh, fear of the future, and ultimately his fear of death, and then it speaks to him because it, it offers hope for the future. It speaks to us theologically because it teaches us about the relationship of, of the flesh to the spirit, about the relationship between law and grace, between works and faith. Most of all, the book of Romans speaks profoundly about the nature and person of God himself. You know, a lot of people today think about religion as being man's quest for God. And if that's the truth about religion, that's very bad news. Um, religion is, religion is, is the effort for man to reach God, but Christianity is not about man's effort to reach God or the conditions through which we can, can come to God and make God okay with us. Christianity is primarily about God's efforts, continuing efforts, to reach out to man in his lostness and to rescue him. That's a message of, of hope for those who are still in darkness and in despair, the, uh, the, the message that it can be lifted out of this darkness and into the wonderful light. It's this great drama of history of how God saves rebellious mankind. It's this, this epic struggle in history between death and the, the greater victory. So Paul is going to be unpacking some pretty powerful um, themes throughout the book of Romans, but I think perhaps the best way to capsulize Romans is it would be in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 or 17, where we're going to get to last week, 
excuse me, next week. And there we find out that the theme is God's action um, prompted by faith in, in saving us. And it is about um, God himself. So it's about how Christ's righteousness is transferred to us, about his moral perfection, which becomes ours. It's about his acceptance with the Father, which becomes ours, and how Christ, when someone becomes saved, the power and presence of Christ erupts into that person's life and begins to change them, not just save them from hell and deliver them to heaven, but literally transform that person beginning at the moment of salvation until at last when we are in his presence in heaven, when we become Christ-like, when we become what God meant for man, for humanity to be, when we are apart from our sin and then fully made in the image of Christ. Everything, every part of the gospel circles around Christ's achievement, not ours, about Christ's accomplishment. So it doesn't present us a way in which we come to God, but rather it proclaims a way in which God has reached out to us in our great need and how um, this, is, this is good news. This is the glad tidings that, that we offer to the world. It's, it's, uh, it's, about what is, it's, it's about what God has already done, how God has already fulfilled all the requirements, all that it was needed. And, and all we do in response to what God has already done is that we accept that, we receive that, we acknowledge that by faith in our heart, and we express gratitude and love we confess Jesus as Christ, the God's Son and Savior. And that is, after all, what Paul means by faith. It is simply an acknowledgement of what God has already done for us. So Romans is ultimately a book about God, and it's about how he acted to, to bring salvation. It's about how he does so in a way that preserves his justice. Um, it fulfills his purposes, and they're worked out through our lives and through history. It's about how he comes to save his people. Now, with that introduction, let's begin with um, just the greetings and salutations. That's as far as we're going to get today. Um, Romans 1, 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Christ Jesus, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, that's all one sentence. It's the second longest sentence in the Bible, and Paul wrote the longest one, which this is the second longest one. Anyway, right away in verse 1, Paul describes himself as the servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. You know, he could have begun by saying, you know, they already knew who he was. I mean, he's famous, even though most of them haven't met him. Um, he could have said, you know, I'm Paul, the eminent theologian, the Old Testament scholar, uh, the frontline warrior, man of exceptional, brilliant intellect, you know, but he chooses to refer to himself rather as doulos, the servant, a lowly servant. See, that's, 
That's how he wants to be known, a servant of God. Now, to the Romans, that would have been rather offensive to call yourself something low life, like a servant. You know, to the Jews, not quite so offensive, especially if it was connected with being the servant of God. Um, that would be a, a, a good title. But he's writing to Romans, and he's referring to himself as, as a servant. And then he says that he's called to be an apostle. Now, this is important because he's telling us that he, he did not call himself to be an apostle. He didn't just decide, you know, I think I'll be an apostle. Wake up some morning, you know what I want to do? I want to be an apostle. No, he's telling us he's not self-appointed, that God appointed him to this position. And that would be powerful because if he was self-called or self-appointed, then when things got tough, he would always be wondering, am I really doing what I'm supposed to be doing? I mean, if, if I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, why are things so hard for me? I mean, why are people so abrasive, you know, it's, but when he knows that God has appointed him to this position, when those hard times come, when those persecutions come, he can have that sense of confidence knowing he is doing what God has assigned him to do, circumstances or consequences um, notwithstanding, because he knows that this is what he's supposed to be doing, that, is, that God has appointed him and that he's being faithful. Now, Paul says next that he's been separated for the gospel, which he promised before through his prophets in the Scriptures. You know, sometimes we make this artificial bifurcation, this separation between Old Testament and New Testament, and we try to promote the idea that the Old Testament is all about law and conformity and God who's always angry and judging, and the New Testament which is all about love and forgiveness and grace and mercy and freedom from the law. The reality is it's one word. This is God's word, and you find continuity between the Old and the New Testament. You, you find law in the New Testament, and you find gospel in the Old Testament. In fact, the very first presentation of the gospel takes us clear back to the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, when God, in response to a cursing man, and cursing woman and cursing the serpent when Adam and Eve disobeyed, he tells them that the, uh, the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head and that the, uh, in the process of doing so, the seed of the serpent would bruise the man's heel. So you have a picture centuries before associated with the curse that tells us about the gospel. And in fact, at the cross, um, where, where Jesus crushes the serpent head, and in the process, the serpent uh, causes him to be bruised um, for our iniquities, the, we have this first promise of the gospel. So in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14, we have what's known as the Proto-Evangelion, the first presentation of the gospel. And you see that over and over and over through scriptures, that, that, that we find the Old Testament is full of gospel. It's this gospel of the Old Testament that Paul is referring to, and he says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. Um, so much of who the Messiah is and what He would do and, and how He would accomplish this is found in the Old Testament. You know, uh, who, would, who was Jesus' mother? She, she was to be a virgin. Uh, of what house was Jesus to be born? Of, of the house of David. Where would Jesus be born? In Bethlehem of Judea. Uh, what name would be given to the Messiah? Emmanuel. 
what would his death be like? It would be a cross piercing his body without his bones being broken. Where would this all take place? In Jerusalem, but outside of the city gates. And so Paul is taking us back. He's not referring to this novelty that he's been presenting around the world. He's telling us the gospel is throughout the Scripture, and he's talking about the Old Testament Scripture because the New Testament Scripture doesn't exist when he's writing this. He's taking us back to the, the Garden of Eden and the fall, and he's reminding us that the prophets foretold this, that the law foresaw the, the, the gospel, the, the Emmanuel. But, but why do we need a gospel? I mean, the word gospel means good news. Why, why do we need good news in the first place? Because the reality, apart from gospel, good news, is exceedingly bad news. Our situation prior to the good news of the gospel is desperate. It's hopeless. We need the good news because our reality, apart from it, is very bad news. MacArthur wrote, Sin is bad news in every dimension. Among its consequences to guarantee misery and sorrow for a world taken captive. Sin has selfishness at its heart. The basic element of fallen human nature is exaltation of self, the ego. When Satan fell, he was asserting his own will above God's, five times declaring, I will. Man fell by the same self-will when Adam and Eve asserted their own understanding about right and wrong above God's clear instruction. <laughs> by nature, man is self-centered and inclined to have his own way. He will push his selfishness as far as circumstances and tolerance of society will allow. When his self-will is unbridled, man consumes everything and everyone around him in an insatiable quest to please himself. When friend, fellow workers, or a spouse cease to provide what is wanted, they are discarded like an old pair of shoes. Much of Western society is imbued with the, with the propriety of self-esteem and self-will that virtually every desire has come to be considered a right. The ultimate goal in many lives today is little more than perpetual self-satisfaction. Every object, every idea, every circumstance, every person is viewed in light of what it can contribute to one's own purposes and welfare. Lust for wealth, possession, fame, dominance, popularity, and physical fulfillment drive people to pervert everything they possess and everyone they know. Employment has become nothing more than a necessary evil to finance one's indulgences. As is often noted, there's a constant danger of loving things and using people rather than loving people and using things. When that temptation is succumbed to, Stable and faithful personal relationships become impossible. A person engulfed in self-will and self-fulfillment becomes less and less capable of loving because as his desires to possess grows, his desire to give withers. And when he forfeits selfish, selflessness for selfishness, he forfeits the source of true joy. Selfish greed progressively alienates a person from everyone else including those who are closest and dearest. The end result is loneliness and despair. Everything that is craved soon yields to the law of diminishing returns, and the more one has of it, the less it satisfies. That's bad news. We are ruined by sin. And we are not only separated from God in that we are not with Him 
His holiness and our sinfulness have driven us to the extreme. That's bad news. But the essence of Paul's letter to the Romans is that there is good news, truly good news. In fact, he would say that this that he's a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest of the gospel of God, that he brings this good news of Christ. And the good news is that sin can be forgiven, selfishness can be overcome, guilt can be removed, anxiety can be alleviated, life can indeed have hope for the present and then hope for an eternity. That's the good news. So this, the nature of this good news, Paul tells us, is that it is the gospel of God, or the good news that comes from God, or news that is found in God, or news that originates in God. So that's the nature of the good news, but clearly the focus or the focal point of the good news is God's Son. It's the righteousness that comes to us through Jesus Christ, Romans 3.22. It's the gift of redemption, Romans 3.24. It is the propitiatory, propitiatory sacrifice. To be propitiated means that your anger is satisfied. So we talk about propitiation. We mean that God is angry with sin, but he is fully satisfied with the offering that Jesus has, bring, has brought to us. That's Romans 3.25. It is the act of justification that we have in Christ, uh, Romans 324 through 26. It's the peace that comes through us through Jesus Christ, Romans 5, 1. It's the demonstration of God's love through Christ's death, Romans 5, 8. It's the deliverance from God's wrath and reconciliation to God through Christ's death, Romans 5, 9. It's the gift of forgiveness that comes through Christ, Romans 5, 15 through 17. It's eternal life through Christ, Romans 5, 21. It's newness of life in Christ through his resurrection, Romans 6, 4. It's death to self through Christ's death, Romans 6, 4. It's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 1. It's freedom from the law of sin and death, Romans 8, 2, which, by the way, is the address of this church, Romans 8, 2. Um, it's the requirements of the law which are met in Christ, Romans 8, 3. It's God for us through Jesus Christ, Romans 8, 31. It is the overwhelming, conquering love of God that is ours in Christ, Romans 8, 37. You get the point, right? So I'm giving you an outline of the book of Romans. And this all rests on what we receive because of what Christ has done. Now, Paul summarizes the whole life and work of Jesus Verse 4, when he says he is born of the seed of David, declared to be the Son of God with power. So he makes this very clear declaration um, of who Jesus is, and then he tells us that this becomes ours, verse 4, through the resurrection from the dead. So God raises Jesus from the dead. Now, initially you might think, well, you know, nothing terribly remarkable about being raised from the dead because, it, you know, God can do anything. God is all-powerful. He creates. But that's not... Although that's true, that's not essentially what he's saying here. It's, he's not saying that it displays the power of God in resurrecting someone from the dead. And it's not essentially even saying that it displays the power of Christ Jesus in that he is raised from the dead. It, although that is also true. The point here is that he's displaying the character of Jesus whom, if he has the power to be raised from the dead, he is rightfully 
the eternal Son of God and deserves our allegiance. That's the point that he's trying to make. And by, by what evidence, then, do we ultimately believe that Jesus is the eternal Son of God who is rightfully Lord of our lives today? And the answer is, by the testimony of God himself who raised him from the dead. Martin Lloyd-Jones explains it like this. The Lord Jesus Christ was the Son of God before. He is always the Son of God. He was the Son of God before the incarnation and from all eternity. Where then is the variation? It's in the form that he assumes. And we are told in verse 3 that when he came into the world, he did not come as the Son of God in power. No, he came as a helpless babe. He was the Son of God, yes, but not the Son of God in power. In other words, when he came as a babe, the power of the Son of God was veiled in the flesh. But what the apostle says is, in the resurrection, he's declared to be the Son of God with power. It's there that we realize how powerful he is. Verse 6 says that we are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Verse 7 says that we are loved of God and called to be saints. Now, this is not a bland statement. You know, it's easy to glide over these words. This is, this is Paul declaring that it is God's nature to love. And you might, you might say, well, because it's God's nature to love and because he loves everyone, it becomes a very pointless statement. There's a bubble in the carpet here. Um, I'm going to fall over that one of these days. And you might say, well, because it's God's nature to love, of course he loves the Romans. I mean, he loves everybody. He loves all people everywhere, and, and, uh, and, and that would be true. But he's talking to us specifically, specifically about God's electing love, not God's general love. So the statement loved of God here is describing how specifically the believers in Rome are loved of God and how they became saved or how they came to Christ in the first place. And that's a question that's worth pondering, isn't it? Because there's a lot of people who believe that they became Christians by their own unaided choice. They looked at the evidence, they weighed them in the balance, and they just decided to trust Jesus. And so if that were true, I congratulate you because you used your brilliant intellect to choose where other people lacking your brilliance and lacking your ability have failed to make that distinction. But again, I have to say, but what does the Scripture say? The Scripture says that we were dead in our transgressions, that we were unable, as a dead man is unable, to respond to any stimulus. You stick a knife in him, stick in a fork in him, stick a pin in him. He does not respond because he's not able to respond. He's dead. Now, if you believe that you were able to choose God by your own wisdom and that you just simply woke up one day and decided to choose God, then you're denying what, the clear scripture, what clearly the Scripture has to say, and you have to come to this conclusion. Your friend is not completely dead. He's only mostly dead. So people who believe that you decided to follow Christ deny what the Scripture clearly says and say, in spite of the fact that the Scripture says you are dead, I believe you are not. You might be mostly dead, but you're still partly alive, and you're able to respond when you get that little chocolate-coated thing that, that uh, what's his name, Max? Miracle, what, Miracle Max? 
Yeah, because you're only partly dead. The other option, of course, is that um, some people say, well, um, God chose you, but He chose you because He looks down through the corridor of time and He sees in you something good, something noteworthy, something praiseworthy. He sees in you a spark of faith. He sees this goodness in you, and He knows, given the right information, you would choose Him, and so He chooses you because He knows that you're going to choose Him. This also defies the clear teaching of Scripture where God says all have turned away and they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. That's Romans 3.12 and Psalms 14.2. So we're forced then to press on. Then why does God choose us? Why does God love us? Why does God choose to surround us with his love? And the answer is because he loves us. It's not double talk. He chooses to love us because he loves us. Remember what God said to his people through Moses? The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous to other people. You were the fewest of all people. But it was because the Lord loved you. The only explanation of why the Lord loved them is he loved them. It's love and only love. So we who are loved of God are called. And this calling is what theologians call the effectual calling. Okay, so there's two kinds of calling when you're talking about the Bible. There's a general calling, which God applies to every single person. This general calling is whenever a person hears the gospel, they are called to turn from their sin and receive Jesus Christ. That's the general calling. And of course, we realize that not everyone who hears the gospel, who receives this general call, is going to um, turn to him. Not all will obey. Nevertheless, you know, when we find scriptures like, come unto me all you who are weary and heavy laden, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. It is in fact a genuine calling. It is a sincere calling. God is calling everyone. In other words, there's no barrier from God's point of view. Nothing yet has to be done. There are no conditions yet to be fulfilled. There's no, um, nothing that, that, that stands in the way you know, that, that keeps you from receiving the gospel. But the reality is that no one, and I include you, wants to receive the gospel. No one wants to submit to the Godhead. No one wants to surrender self in the, in the place of the throne of their life. So something has to happen beyond this general calling, which we call effectual calling or specific calling, so that somehow when a person receives this genuine, or excuse me, general calling, something has to happen to make the dead spirit awaken so that they can receive it and embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and inherit eternal life and righteousness and God's favor. We call that the effectual calling. But you can't do that 
any more than Lazarus can raise himself from the dead. It takes the voice of God to call the dead to life. And when that person, when you heard, every one of you who has become a Christian has heard in some way the effectual call of God, which sparked life in you so that when you heard the word, you were able to embrace it. God savingly calls these spiritually dead corpses, and they come to life and they do God's bidding. They, they, they hear the call as you have heard the call, and they respond to it. This, by the way, is exactly what makes so many people really mad. Because the whole idea suggests there's nothing in you admirable, praiseworthy, worth congratulating, because you were so smart to choose God. Our pride rejects that message. No, 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 I did something. Jesus did a lot. Yes, I congratulate him. He did a lot, but he left it up to me to finish my salvation. And because we hate the idea, because it challenges our pride, we reject it. And we reject not only the message, but we reject the messenger who suggests it. This is the message. Salvation is of the Lord from first to last. And there's nothing that you have contributed to make that salvation happen except the sin that you had which Christ bore on the cross. It was the sin, your sin, which made his death necessary. That's what you contributed and nothing more. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. That is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, lest anyone should boast. Verse 7 says we are called to be saints. We're not called because we're saints. We're saints because we're called. We're saints in the sense that everyone else before us for the last 2,000 years of New Testament history, and I don't know how far back in the Old Testament history, we're saints with them. We are those called to be God's people. We are set apart for holiness. And thus we're, there's this continuity between the people sitting here in this church right now and those who read this book, this letter of, the, of Paul's to the Romans. Uh, lastly, we're, we're told here, uh, I don't know what verse we're in now, seven, I think, that we are recipients of grace and peace. Well, the typical Greek greeting was, was kairé, which is something like rejoice or what's up, dude, you know, something like that, kairé. And Paul modifies this to a much richer word when he says charis, which means peace. He's combining it with a, the Old Testament or, or the saints before. They would say shalom, or in Greek, it's irene. So he's combining these, these, these Old Testament and New Testament terms, the grace and peace. Um, and he, and what, what beautiful concept here is that because we have God's grace, the consequence of that grace is incredible peace that floods our beings. And, and we have that through Jesus Christ. Now, to appreciate 
this gospel, this good news, we, we should begin, too, by mentioning aside from Christianity, uh, every other religion is not good news. It's very bad news. It, all religions apart from Christianity are about how you, through your self-effort, can become all right with God. And that's, that's a religion of, of works. It's a religion of self-helps. And they tell you how you can achieve this goal of rightness with God or peace or happiness or, you know, whatever. And we do that by human efforts. And if that were possible to achieve peace and happiness and rightness with God through your own works, then any religion would, would, would suffice. Any religion would be as effective as any other religion. Christianity would have nothing unique on it. But the reality is, through your self-effort, it is not possible. The gap between the sinner and God is just too great. God is too holy. And because of this immense holiness and our immense sinfulness, there's, it, it's, too, it's too far to reach him. Sin has taken such a, a hold on us that it, that it keeps us from that peace and happiness and fulfillment and self-satisfaction. Um, religion based on what you or I can do um, is comfortless because we cannot fulfill the requirements and they become a burden to us. But the good news of the gospel is that salvation is of the Lord, that the, there's this strong declaration that salvation is entirely dependent upon what God has already done, not what you can do to finish the work. And again, the only contribution that you have made to your salvation is your sin, which was made it necessary for Christ to go on the cross to suffer that penalty to propitiate, to satisfy God's wrath for sin. And the apostle affirms this in Romans eleven thirty six when he says, from him and through him and to him are all things. Um, that's to say that salvation is God-determined, it is God-purchased, it is God-applied, it is God-secured, it's from start to finish, it is the work of the Lord God alone. And, and we have seen these truths displayed for us in the, in the Gospels, and we see them in the doctrines of grace. And by that I'm talking about you know, total depravity and unconditional election and definite atonement, effectual calling, um, preserving grace. Um, these truths define, they are doctrines which define to us the, the person and the acts of God as the author of our salvation from beginning to end. Each member of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each playing a part, a role in redemption, and they work together as one God who rescues us from perishing under divine wrath. It's, it's this perfect unity, these divine three persons working to save the hell-bound sinners, which, which we are utter, utterly incapable of saving ourselves. And Charles Spurgeon said, some men can't endure to hear the doctrine of election. I suppose they like to choose their own wives, but they're not willing that Christ should choose his own bride, the church. Well, as I said, I realize that uh, for many of you, this teaching will make you feel queasy or anxious or even angry, but uh, God's 
sovereign choice, God's calling is a frequently reoccurring theme throughout Scripture, and we're going to find it many times as we study the book of Romans. This is just the first call. Let's pray. Our pride is offended by the suggestion that we can't be congratulated for helping Jesus to finish salvation. We can't be congratulated for our wisdom and the good choice that we've made in choosing you. But that attitude paints such a small picture, Father, of who you are, and we choose instead to worship a big God, a sovereign God, a God of incredible holiness, and at the same time, a God of incredible love and mercy and compassion. And as we unfold these doctrines, as we study the book of Romans, I pray again that you'll give us humble, teachable hearts. And when we are challenged, when it goes against what we believe, that we would be careful to check to see, is this in fact what God's Word says? And if it is, that we would be humble enough to change what we think to conform to your truth. Father, I pray that you will please grow us and grow this church as we learn to worship you for who you truly are. And we pray this through the power and authority of Jesus Christ who has called us and saved us and chosen us to be part of the church, his bride. Amen.